grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Jo Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, it's Jo Sparrow here. Today's guests first shared their story with us in our Jigsaw Queensland newsletter, Bits and Pieces, Summer 2020 edition. In the newsletter, Daryl Nelson shared his account of his experience of seeking a discharge of adoption in Queensland. Each person undertaking this process experiences it differently. Daryl was born in Brisbane in 1964 during the closed and, ado- closed and forced adoption eras, and he first discovered that he was adopted when he was 14 years old and uncovered further information about his adoption later when the records were unsealed. Daryl's discharge was successful in 2020. But it wasn't an easy road to get there. Working on his own, it took Daryl 18 months to build a case that took only 20 minutes to hear. Welcome to Adopt Perspective, Daryl, and thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks, Joe, for having me. Daryl, um, just as it is for many of us who are affected by adoption, there was the story you were told and experienced before you obtained your identifying information. And then later, after obtaining your records and meeting biological family, there was a further revealing of your history. And if it's okay, I'd, I'd like you to begin by sharing your story with us as you first knew it. Sure, thanks. Um, well, to be honest, I didn't really have a story because I wasn't told about uh, being adopted until I, as you said, I was 14, I think, uh, in puberty, unfortunately, which is about finding identity, isn't it? And um, yes. yeah, so I was watching the matinee midday movie uh, on TV and uh, we lived in the country. We'd, um, we moved around a lot because my dad was sick when I was growing up with uh, what we later found out was asbestosis. So we yeah. moved around a lot and I was very, had a di- very disrupted um, kind of childhood with different schools and, and, and such. And this place we were living then was called Hobby Jards, which is a very, very small town in uh, west, of, um, west of Blaney. And so it's very isolated. And of course I found out uh, uh, after watching the matinee movie, I went to, hey, I'm not adopted, am I? Which wasn't the first time I'd asked. And this time she started crying and sort of ran away. And mum and dad had a fight and they didn't really usually fight. Uh, and then they came back to me eventually when it was dark when they came back to me. And they handed me a piece of paper, which I think was the adoption order. And uh, she said, yes, you are adopted. So for me, it was um, a shock, obviously. And like I say, very isolating in an isolated place. I didn't know what to do. Um, Like who were these people that had lied to me all my life? Um, 
you know, I was doing well at school. I didn't know really what the next step would be for me, whether I should just leave tonight. That's how I felt or whether I should just get on with my life. So really I had only a couple of hours to think about what I would do next. And then I decided that I would just get on with life and try and bury it. Yeah. It was obviously something that you had a bit of a suspicion about because I wouldn't think it's an, an, an average normal thing to ask your parents if you're adopted. No, I didn't. I, I think growing up, you know, I never really thought like them. Um, I, first of all, I had quite white skin and they would tan easily and I would burn. Um, so that was one clue. The other thing that, you know, I had talents they didn't have. And they didn't really understand me either, I think, in, in some of my creative talents and what I was interested in. I didn't really like the things my dad liked. Uh, Mum was very supportive. She was very loving. But again, I was nothing really like her. She sort of lived her life blown by the wind, if you like, not making decisions, which goes back to her childhood issues. Uh, but I, for me, I, you know, I, even as a young child, I thought, well, hang on, why don't we make this decision? Why can't we improve our lot in life? You know, instead of just being told what to do and just moving on, we can, you know, take charge. So even as a young kid, even prior to me knowing that I was adopted, I always felt that I was a bit, you know, didn't fit in. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about, you said that you decided just to get on with life. Um at some point, something must have tweaked with you in order to think about searching for your biological family. I know for me, it was something because I always knew I was adopted. So I always wanted to find my mother. Um, how was it for you? How did that sort of switch turn on? Well, my dad was a bit of a patriarch. You know, he, um, he was a very strong man. I'll say that a nice way about him. And um, so I was kind of fearful of him. And he died when I was 22. Up until then, I felt like it's not a topic that could be raised again. So, you know, that one day I was told and then that was it. Uh, it never came up again. When he died, when I said when I was 22, um, he, um, he left me and mum alone. And I felt like I could finally start thinking about where I came from. That's all I really wanted to know about my identity, really. I, I wanted to know you know, what my background was. Um, I didn't really care about knowing my birth family at that point of time um, because I felt like they abandoned me and that was my way of coping. I thought, well, they, they didn't want me. I don't want them. And that was the only way I could sort of go forward in life. But that's a very adolescent point of view. And then as I grew older, uh, I thought that, you know, I, I better handle this like an adult. So I started, I think the seed was planted but it started to grow uh, early in my 20s and it wasn't until I was around 30 where the laws changed and you could actually ultimately you know right away and try and find who your mother was that's about all I gave you in those days yeah wasn't much so information I, no so I so I did that and and that was a process in itself to try and get that and then dealing with that too yeah tell us about your search all right, well, I had help, I suppose, in, in the search because in those days you didn't have a support worker, a counsellor. You didn't have any of these things. You just had basic information. 
And I wrote away and it took, I think, 12 months for me to get a letter back with non-identifying information. And all that said was, well, your mum was a list of occupations, a list, it was an A4 page and a half of occupations and your dad, well, we don't know about him. And, and so that was useless to me. So I wrote away again asking for identifying information and after about six months, I got a name. That's all I got. But I had a Freddie who um, sort of broke some rules and she gave me, she sort of linked me up with some, uh, that's how I sort of investigated who she was with. And then I also wrote away to birth, deaths and marriages um, in Queensland for a marriage certificate. Uh, her name was Beverly, my mother. And I wrote away for her marriage certificate and I got that. Now, I know now that that was illegal that they gave to me, but back then I didn't know and I, I got the information that she'd married this guy called Alan. And uh, that's where my, I suppose my search started. At that time, my mum, this is my adoptive mum, Jean, uh, my uncle had died in Brisbane. I had to go to attend a funeral. So sort of that was a catalyst for me to get moving on, on this information. And I ended up, um, my girlfriend at the time posed as someone and she rang the number that I had been given from my friend at Medicare for my mother. But um, we found out that she died, unfortunately. So I never met her. Um, and then the only other clue I had was this, this other guy's name, Alan. Now, when I was born, the name that was given to me by my mother was called Shane Allen Wallace. And Alan was spelt A-double-L-E-N. So was the same name of this guy that she'd married. So I put two and two together and thought, well, Alan's spelt like that's usually a surname, but here it is a middle name. And that's his first name. So I thought that was a bit weird maybe maybe he's the father and so like I said I was traveling to Queensland um, really the next week so I made the phone call and called him and said you know I want to talk to you about Beverly and he said oh yeah and I said uh, eventually I said are you my father and he said yeah I reckon I would be as, as plainly as that yeah um, but that was the start of it all obviously it took decades to form a relationship with that family. But ultimately I found out that I had actually had two full blood brothers and a mm. half sister. Uh, and I, I met them from that started really from the next weekend. Wow. So your mother and father had married after you were born, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So the way it the way it actually worked out was um, you know, I have to piece this story over many decades. And it's, some of it's hearsay, some of it's fact. But they were long-term boyfriend and girlfriend. And um, Alan had to move to Mackay for work. He was, uh, I think he was studying spray painting or something for a trade. And he had um, uh, some, some work to do up there uh, to, to learn the trade. And... He was up there and then she used to visit him. I think he was only up there for a year or so, but one of those times I was conceived and then she came back and uh, ultimately um, was pregnant. Her mother believed the father was her cousin, however, uh, 
which sort of complicated things. And there was a lot of pressure put on her to give me away. Uh, she didn't tell Alan, not sure why, could have been protecting him. Maybe she was sworn to secrecy, whatever the reason. I think she was threatened with not, uh, you know, not being able to come home if she just didn't give up the baby. So she was put into the Salvation Army Hospital in Boothville in uh, Windsor. And uh, she had me. Because that story was the first cousin was the father, and she continued that story to social workers, they, that is, the government deemed me as unfit for adoption. I think they called it a deferred adoption in those days. So uh, I couldn't be adopted. And normally that child would go to an institution, um, but I had a foster family willing to take me on. They were looking for a foster child. They weren't looking for to adopt. And so they took me on and I was with them for two years. I don't know what my mother was told, but she had rights to see me whilst I was in foster care. I believe she wasn't told, certainly Alan wasn't told. But anyway, before I was adopted, Alan and Beverly got married which even in those days legitimised me and gave me a, you know, the perfect family where you have a mother and father, apparently. That's the perfect family in those days. So even though I had my birth mother and father married, the government went ahead and adopted me out to this, uh, the foster parents yeah. um, after they got married. The sad, the tragedy of it, I guess, is that um, after they were married, Alan and Beverly had another son called Lawrence, but he died after an hour's life. So here she was, she'd given me away and then she had another son and then he died. And that's when she told Alan about me, but they thought that I was adopted. They thought that there was no way they could get me back. And, and that was that. It's tragic, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a fork in the road, you know, it's like, yeah just these incidental untruths that determined my path in life. Yeah. So how has reunion been for you? Well, it's, it's taken, it's a process. Uh, initially when I met Alan, um, I met, his new wife, Sue, and my sister, Catherine. And um, I was sitting in a hotel room in Brisbane on the end of a bed and they were opposite me. And uh, as I would talk, they would point to me and say, that's Conrad, or that's Joel, these are my other brothers. Or the way I would move my, my hands, they'd say, oh, that's Joel. Um, Joel was a chef, I love to cook. Joel plays the drums, so do I. Uh, Conrad was a go-getter in business, so was I. Um, Catherine was a little environmentalist and I love the environment and care for that, um, you know, a bit of a greenie myself. So we all have these, you know, I guess genetic mirrors suddenly that I, I had after growing up an only child where I had none of that with my family, with my, you know, extended family. Um, I didn't fit in, but suddenly here were these people saying that I did fit in that I look like them. Um, so again, it was a very, you know, it's a shock. And, and there was a series of shocks like this over time. 
Uh, we did a DNA test back in the day when uh, DNA was sort of just being used, a proper DNA test with blood. Um, again, that was hard to um, get to do because he was a man that had accepted me as his son and I had to ask him to do the blood test to make sure that he accepted, um, you know, that, that we were the match. And, but, you know, the funny thing is with, with Alan, there's been moments like that across our relationship and I want so much to say something to him. I've got a big topic to talk about and then some, somehow he reads my mind and he says things before I even, even come across it. So, again, I think it's that genetic um, stuff coming through, which I'd never had experienced before. Yeah. I think so much of your story too reminds me of something that sort of sits across many adoptee stories and that's that um, the truth of how we came to be in the families and everything is something that we've always got to, I always feel like I'm walking on carpet that's got lots of changeable things under it. So you kind of think you've got the lay of the land and you know, you know, what happened and who, and then someone will say something and it changes things. And I always feel like I'm walking on, you know, this. Yeah. And mm. whether it's big secrets or just little things that change you. And it's very important for us, I think, to kind of lock on to the truth. Well, our ears are always open, aren't they? You know, yeah. we're always listening for those little nuances and, and little secrets. But the fact is we turn up and we're the secret. Yeah. And, and we, are, we are, are arriving to try and find out who we are. Mm-hmm. But everyone else has suspicion about why you're there. You know, is he after money? Mm. Um, what's he want from us, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and of course that I dug up the rape story and all that stuff, which was a big secret too. And I mean, I was, I was a secret. I was not even talked about by anyone. So here was I turning up and uh, I felt like I was pretty on eggshells. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you started to think about discharging your adoption. I'm wondering what was your motivation behind that? What did you hope to gain from it? Well, that was decades later, I guess. Um, You know, this is only a few years ago now. But I think, you know, after finding out more about my story, I wrote away and again to Queensland government and they gave me more information. And that was then that I found out that I was fostered first and not adopted. And So you hadn't been told that? No, not really. Okay. No. Uh, I think one point in time I wrote away for some medical records mm-hmm. and the doctor that assessed me as being fit or unfit for adoption wrote to my doctor. He was still alive then, that, that assessor type doctor. And uh, he was saying, oh, yes, he's, he's fine. He didn't show any failures to thrive. And, I mean, he was just believing a story that was fed to him. So yeah. everything was based on lies. Um so yeah, it was it was pretty uh, hardcore. That was one of the things. I mean, I didn't like the lie story, you know. And when I dug up more information, that lie story was there in black and white, and it was held by government. So you know, here was I, you know, illegitimate um, product of incest and of rape, and that's on record. And I didn't like that record because it wasn't true. And I said, hey, you know, it's uh, not true and this is the DNA certificate and et cetera, et cetera. And the government said, well, yes, it's true because it was true then, therefore it's true now. Even though you've got evidence against it, we can't change that. 
So that was, I suppose, the first little uh, irritant amongst a lot of irritants. Yeah. Uh, that it's that whole thing where government controls you. You know, they, first of all, they, you know, they give you a new name. They allow that to happen, that, that reissue of a birth certificate. That's completely wrong, but it's legal in, you know, law, but wrong morally. Uh, you know, so they erase your identity. So that was another thing. I didn't like being controlled, again, by government and told that I was someone else. Uh, and then the third thing, this is a long answer to your question. I'm sorry. All right, keep going. Um, the third thing that happened was that I tried to make a will and I went to um, a lawyer and I was saying, you know, I want to leave such and such to my brothers, to my sisters, to my father, blah, blah, blah. And the lawyer said, oh, you can't, you can't say that. And I said, can't say what? And, and she said, well, you, you can't call them your brothers and sister. And I said, but they are, you know, here again, here's the DNA proof. And she said, but legally they're not, legally they're nothing to you. And I thought, okay, well, legally I will change that and I'll see what I can do about that because I'm done with being controlled by government telling me who I am, um, especially when that's all false. Yeah. So um, tell us about the process of seeking the, dis the discharge. What was that like? Well, to be honest, I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah. It's not really promoted, is it? Um, no, I didn't know about it until more recent years. It wasn't something no. I thought was a possibility. It's like the apology when Gillard did that. It wasn't really telecast. It wasn't all the adoptees weren't sent a letter. You know, it's, we either we watched TV that day or we didn't. Um, and then if you, even if you watch TV, it was all about the ousting of Gillard on the day. So, you know, we don't get told. And by then I, I know I'm adopted, but what about the people that don't know? They don't get told either. They don't get told their avenues in life. But I think um, I found it on, on the web, did a web search and found out this thing called discharge and then realized, okay, well, you've got to go to Supreme Court. You've got to have grounds for the discharge. And if you'll indulge me, I'll sort of talk about those grounds for a second. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So there's um, in Queensland, this has changed in 2009. Prior to that, if you're an adoptive parent, you could always discharge if you wanted to return the goods, if you like. Try not to get too political here, but um, yeah, the adoptive person could always go, sorry, the adoptive parents could always go to a court and ask for their money back, if you like. Um, but it was only in 2009 where adoptive um, people and even, I think, birth parents can actually go and ask for a discharge. Um, and I think the grounds that they still have, they say the order was made or something was done for the purpose of making the order because of a false or misleading document or representation, because a person acted fraudulently or used undue influence on another person or acted in another improper way, or whether the consent required for the adoption wasn't given freely and voluntary, voluntarily by a person with the capacity to consent, or there are other exceptional circumstances that warrant the discharge. So not too many grounds there that you can apply under. Like you can't, as an adoptive person, go in and say, hey, I don't want to be this person anymore. 
because you have to have grounds and you have to prove those grounds. It's a court of law and it's the Supreme Court of Queensland, the highest court they've got. Um, so my first step was trying to understand how to tackle that. So I tried to engage a lawyer and just to apply to the court, he wanted to charge me $14,000. Wow. Uh, if he handled the case, he wanted 40000 and a barrister wanted 140000 So I'm looking at $200,000. That's to... a lot of money for the average punter. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, well, I still want this. And, well, I can apply. There's nothing stopping just a person from applying to the court. Obviously, it's better if you have a lawyer, but I don't need a lawyer. Because all the lawyers that I talked to, none of them had any experience in this area of law anyway. Uh, so, yes, I, I read about how to apply and I filled the form in and, and wrote an affidavit and, and then I had to seek affidavits from everyone else, like my um, natural family and even my birth, sorry, my adoptive mum. I needed her support, if you like, an affidavit saying she was for or against the whole idea. Yeah. Luckily, she said she was supporting me and she you know would uh, understood that it was good for me um, and my birth family also did they anyone concerned with the whole adoption thing in the, in the start anyone that might be affected by the discharge had to be engaged uh, in the application had the right to say yes or no in court so again that that might be hard for some for some adoptees that for example, have been abused by their adoptive parents and don't want them knowing. So the, the, the process is you have to tell everyone, you have to share your affidavit about your life um, if the grounds are exceptional, exceptional circumstances and that's to do with mental health and you have an assessment about your mental health, then you have to share that too with everyone concerned. So you really have to roll out your whole life uh, in, in black and white and again that's another uh, something that you know you're already going through this process which is hard enough then you have to share your deepest innermost secrets and all things that happen to you in life with people you don't really want to yeah but the court process makes you do that and of course you have to have grounds so typically if you discharge your adoption the court has given most discharges under exceptional circumstances because they don't want to th threaten the notion of adoption. Um, so exceptional circumstances typically might mean mental health, which means you have to get assessed by um, a psychologist or something like that, which is what I did. So I built a case around that, but I also had grounds on all those other points I mentioned before. I thought I had a case. Um, there was a lot of fraud in, in my case. Like my mother didn't tell the truth about who the father was, even though she named me after a boyfriend. So, um, you know, there was, there was, that's lying to government. And that set a course, like I say, the course of my life changed because of that. Um, so there's a few things there um, that you, you can apply under. The... The government also has to be notified. That's another uh, respondent, if you like. So they have to be involved. 
and then they get to choose choose whether they will support the application or be indifferent to it or defend it. In my case, they decided after seemed like months that they would um, be neutral, but they still went to the court and in inverted commas, aided, aided the judge to try and help him make a decision, if that's, I can say it nicely. Um, so they, in my mind, defended a lot of the points that I had made, uh, citing different parts of law and things like that, hearsay. Um, so you've really got to be prepared and do your homework if you're going to go to go to court. But then again, I have heard people that can get a discharge by turning up, talking about their life story, especially if they've been abused or they have um, mental health issues uh, down to adoption and judges listen to that without um, the whole rigmarole of proof. Yeah. So... Um... Just back to, I guess, the beginning when you were putting your case forward, you would have had to go and have some conversations. So with your um, father and and his family, uh, like your brothers and sister, I guess, as well as your adoptive mother. How was it for you having those conversations? It was pretty hard because, you know, they've accepted me into their lives. And here I am, the guy that still can't let go, you know, of, of the whole adoption thing that happened to him. And I don't want to complicate that relationship. But because I decided to do the discharge, I obviously had to let them know and had to talk about it. And, you know, they I always said that they had the option to, you know, support or not. And they all decided to support it, which was wonderful. Um, and, and so they, the key people, you know, wrote their affidavits and, and that was that. And on the day, they all turned up to court and were there in Brisbane with me, all, all dressed in their finery and, um, you know, supported me in court as well, which was amazing. Yeah. But it's, it's a lot to go through. I think in a way, you know, you can't let go of that adoption thing. It's there. You know, even, I mean, I've got my discharge. Technically, I'm not adopted anymore. But. Uh, I am obviously it's part of my life it's part of the injustice that happened to me and um, yeah I, I guess it's going to be with me forever and I think they're learning to accept that although I'm trying to let it go a bit and not not harp on about some of these things that happened yeah I know exactly what you mean because um, it is a lifelong journey adoption whether we like it or not whether we want it to be or not the emotional side of going through this process was enormous. Did you have any support as you're working towards the discharge? Not really. I mean, I had obviously my my natural family were, were there and they were sort of supportive, but they weren't on the phone every day. Yeah. Um, my brother Conrad was a couple of times. He was, you know, giving me a, a G up, but really they were sort of there as well. They were there to say, yes, you're doing the right thing. Um, my girlfriend at the time, unfortunately, wasn't supportive. And in fact, we broke up over this discharge. I had planned to um, go further with that relationship, much further than I've ever gone before. But um, she just couldn't understand why I'd want to do that and, and hurt my adoptive mother, in her words. Um, you know, I didn't want to hurt anyone, really. 
myself included. But you're forced to make choices. You know, the law can't let you be two people. You have to be one person. So I decided to, you know, want to be the true self that I am, how I was born um, with my mother and father as who they really are. Yes, okay, I was adopted. That's fine. That's further along in the story. But the truth is my identity was, um, you know, Shane Allen Wallace. And I got to change my name as part of the whole discharge process. You can decide, you know, who you want to be. I incorporated my adoptive name and my uh, original name. But, you know, you're walking this tightrope of knowing, you know, what's the truth versus the role you're playing, the adaptive, adoptive role. And, um, you know, I didn't want to hurt anyone, especially my adoptive mum. And, well, I hope I didn't. But the fact is, that's the truth. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I, I, I always just wanted the truth. I wanted my true identity. And uh, I got it through a lot of hard work. Uh, emotionally, though, I had to stick that side of me on the, on the shelf to get through this whole process. Yeah. Every now and then it would slip down off the shelf and I'd be overwhelmed. And um, I, I remember one time I, you know, this is in the middle of COVID where you couldn't travel and just posting documents from Sydney to Brisbane took a week or more if it got there and I had to do things registered mail and I also had to get lawyers to sign every page of my affidavit. Lawyers weren't open. Justice of the peace weren't open. You know, so every step I took was seems like there was all these obstacles. Anyway, one day, I think my second affidavit I had to get signed by a lawyer, found one that was open and you could stand at his door and he would sign, you know, at arm's length paperwork. And I remember I was, I was getting it signed. I was almost done. I was almost going to get in the mail for a deadline to meet a court deadline and things like this. And my hand started shaking and my emotion came off the shelf and was right in front of me there and then. I wasn't ready for it. I just was completely overwhelmed by this sheer act of almost being there. So, you know, doing all this on your own, um, you know, it changes, makes you a stronger person, I guess, but it also kind of hurts you a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. Can you describe for me um, that moment that you were granted the discharge? Well, it was, um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you what happened in the courtroom because they won't let me. That's one yeah. of the other laws. They won't let you publish it. Um, so, and again, without getting too political, why not? You know, why can't other adoptees learn from what I went through to better their case chances? For example, there's a case, um, unpublished case in South Australia, um, which uh, an adoptee got her discharge based uh, on her mother being under pressure to give her away. That's not published. If we knew that as adoptees, we could all go to court under those grounds. I'll try and go back to your question, which was, you know, how I felt. Yeah. It, was, um, it was all matter of fact. I think the judge had made his determination 
based on what I, I provided, not there and what I said on the day. Uh, but, you know, it was granted and, and then he went to lunch and, and then I went outside and people were hugging me. It was all very surreal. Yeah. So immediately I, I felt numb. And then we went out to lunch and we had some champagne and I still felt, felt overwhelmed by the whole thing and I didn't know how to feel. Yeah. Ultimately, all the things that I learned through that case, all the legal points that I'd read about, I felt like I'd, I started getting this list together of all the things I'd learned. And I just, I thought one night, I thought, I have to put this into a Word document. It's just getting too big. So all the history that I found, and then I kept adding to that. And ultimately, I, I, I wrote a book about the legal or the, the illegalities of the adoption law over time and how we ended up at a space where a woman could be forced to hand over a child to some stranger family. And I couldn't understand that from a humanity point of view. So I, I wrote a book about that. That was another healing process after the discharge in order for me to deal with it. And that took another year or so to write that book and I self-published that. But ultimately after that and after the book, then I started to go, oh yeah, okay, I've finally through it. I finally realized what this means to me and I can see the effect on my birth family. You know, I think before they thought, oh, you know, you know, Daryl, that's his mom over there. I'm not going to sort of encroach on that territory. But once I, you know, turned, I obviously got their surname now, Nelson. Once I did that, I think maybe that proved to them I was in, this is a real deal for me. And so I started to, I feel like there's a change. I feel that they're accepting me more. And um, yeah, I think that initially it didn't happen straight away, that, that good feeling, but I'm starting to get it now. Yeah. 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 I've heard other people, because I've tried to help other people in this process, especially in Queensland. Mm. And they say, when it's finally done, it's relief, you know, and they want to celebrate and, you know, it's finally behind them and, um, some people are, you know, really bruised and scarred by this whole, you know, pre-discharge thing. And they use the discharge as a moment in time to say, yeah. hey, I'm going forward now. I'm yeah. not going to relive the past all, all the time. It's a line I don't think in the it's, sand. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's that easy, but I think that it's a good way to think about it. Yeah. I think you've kind of partly answered um, my next question already, but I'll maybe you'll have something more to add to it. Um, in your newsletter story that you wrote for us a couple of years back, you started it with, I am adopted, I was adopted. Um, and a few years have passed now, um, and I was just wondering, did you gain what you hoped for? Hoped for? Like, did it give you what you wanted? Yeah, I think it did. Uh, I, I would recommend it, definitely. You know, it was a lot of pain to go through. I've learned an incredible amount of truth. I've learned about uh, the fallacies of law. Um, I've learned what's been done to me by government and yeah I, I would rather be the person that is aware of that than one that wants to bury their head in the sand but that's just me you know some people you know the adoptees that could have don't want to know about their their family and things like that 
I say family, their natural family, their real family, their biological family, all these words that we use, but, you know, and also those families that don't want to know them because of the secrets and lies, you know, it's a, it's a complex web. Um, but those people that don't want to know about it, you know, maybe they'll come to a realization, hopefully sooner rather than later that it does affect them. Yeah. Um, you know, just because you're in a loving adoptive family doesn't mean that you should ignore who you are, I think. But, you know, I understand a lot of people don't want to hurt their adoptive families and they've been raised well. And they, and, but I think that, you know, a true family would understand that you want to find out who you are. So for me, it was a process of identity. You know, I didn't really want to, you know, it's not about, you know, gaining inheritance or something like that. You know, it's purely identity, purely about the government um, changing mine. Um, in fact, the discharges that I've heard about where people have tried to discharge their uh, adoption because they want to inherit from their birth family, uh, they're the ones that have failed. Um, so, you know, you have to tread carefully if you're going to do this, but it helps if you, you know, a little bit about the law. You know, if you qualify for legal aid, you can get a lawyer that probably knows a little bit about it. If you don't, then it's a journey you'll have to probably undertake, you know, by yourself. Yeah. Or maybe the laws will change and the grounds will be widened like they've yeah. done in Victoria. Well, and that was my next question to you because we're overdue now in Queensland for revising the adoption legislation. Um, so hopefully that happens soon. And uh, possibly discharging adoption is going to be one of those areas that is revised. Um, what would you like to see changed? Well, I think they need to go back to the drawing board about the whole thing. You know, the thing about laws is they change over time. And there's different nuances. Every couple of years, they might rewrite a paragraph. But you're always building on this cesspit, if you like, of the idea in the, in the start. I mean, I, when I wrote the book, it was about, you know, uh, over 200 years of um, how this stuff had, had changed. And that's what law does. It sort of corrects, you know, the one that was issued in 2009 corrects that. The one was in 1965 corrects that and keep going backwards and sort of modifying things over time. Um, really need to start again, I think, with adoption law, with the adoptee as the centre point. You know, we're not chattel. We're not a thing to be given away or traded. Um, and although, obviously, Australian law is far better than, say, American law, uh, there is still that going on. And access to records. I mean... Why is privacy law stopping us from finding out details about our own life? You know, it's, it's, it's completely wrong morally and uh, the laws have yet to catch up. So I think, you know, there's a lot to be done around adoption law and um, I don't know whether they will get it done, but I'd love to be part of the process that changed it, yeah. Um, yes, and everyone will get to put in submissions. Um, and I should mention that while we're recording this, we haven't had any announcements yet about the amendments, but by the time it comes out, we may have already even gone through the process. We'll see. Um, so it'll be interesting. It's like being in a time machine, isn't it? At the other end of this, when people are listening to it, we could have already had it all done. 
Daryl, there's so many people who are going to be considering whether to pursue a discharge of their adoption. And I know that your story will be really helpful to them as they explore those pros and cons and, and whether it's going to give them the, what they're looking for. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm hoping to help some of those people and um, I have been as well. So sometimes when I hear about someone, they can connect with me through Messenger or something like that and I try and help along too. Oh, that's great. And because that peer support is so important, you know, knowing that you're not alone and having someone who's jogged that road before is really helpful. Yeah, well, when I did it, there was really no navigation. Um, yeah. uh, now that I have been through the process in Queensland, uh, I see the, the pitfalls and I, I see how people can fail. But I also see a, a quite, a, you know, it's a trodden path now. We know the way to go, I think, to get what we need. Yeah. Uh, judges, on the other hand, well, um, sometimes that's the luck of the draw. Uh, but you've got to prepare a case. You know, it's not not just saying I want it. And um, yeah, that can be tricky. Yeah. And if you're wanting to listen to some more information about discharge, um, discharging and adoption, in February and March of 2021, we spoke to Michael about discharging his adoption and to Andrea Lynch more generally about the process and things to consider when thinking about discharging and adoption. And I'll put a link to those episodes and information sheets um, for you guys on the podcast podcast notes page and I might even grab a link from you Daryl for your book if you um, can send me one and I'll put it up there as well sure it's on it's on Amazon but I didn't do this to get a promo for my book no <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to put it up there um, so meanwhile do you have a story that you'd like to share with us if you'd like to be interviewed for the podcast jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest form from there so note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption.